Well, hello, and thank you for listening again. We're here on episode three of our great podcast here at Grace Community Church. Uh, We'll continue looking at um, Dean and Sarah's book, uh, The Unsaved Christian. I've been encouraged by hearing those uh, from those who say they're listening, but also those who say they bought the book. So um, keep listening and start reading if you've not already. It's a... um, it's an easy read because it's a small book, but it's a challenging read because he really does make you think. You can't um, can't just breeze through it for that reason. Right. And, and hopefully those who are reading and listening are beginning to identify perhaps people that they know who might fall into some of these categories that he describes in the book. So um, as you read... Continue to think about those that you know, maybe a neighbor, co-worker, family member, whoever it may be, and uh, think through some of these classifications that he's giving, some of the characteristics, and uh, be ready to uh, give them the gospel when the Holy Spirit provides the opportunity. So chapter three, I'd uh, go titled Civic Religion, Generic Faith that Demands and Asks Nothing of Its Followers. Um. We'll get into the chapter in a minute, but I wanted to ask you a question. Do you think, since this last election cycle, we'll not get into the politics of it all, but just the uh, craziness of it, the divisive nature of everything, do you think we've seen this increase since then, or is it still on the same par of what has been before? I guess the best way I would answer would be, with a certain segment of our society, I think it has increased. On the other side of our society, it probably has decreased. Yeah. Uh, just because the situation is just so divisive and people just really having some very, uh, oh, I don't know, um, stringent views one way or another. So, but uh, either way, it's still uh, an ongoing problem. And one, it's obviously not going to go away very soon. Mm-hmm. So what's the example that he uses here? It should be near and dear to both our hearts. Uh, good old Cincinnati Reds baseball game, playing right. the Cubs um, at Great American Ballpark. And he's got the hot summer afternoon, right? Yeah. Um, particularly, he used the seventh inning stretch where everybody – uh, stands, smart people go get a hot dog. Um, <laughs> other people wait and uh, sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Since baseball tradition goes way back, remember as a kid watching Harry Carey, WGN, yep. leading it. Um, yep. So he's at the Reds game, the seventh inning stretch. Um, did not quite deliver on the nostalgia he was hoping for, he said. Um, this was um, on a Sunday. You know, on Sundays, most baseball stadiums, after 9-11, uh, now, I believe, do two songs. I believe they do the Take Me Out to the Ball Game for the seventh inning stretch and um, God Bless America. Right, yep. So 45,000 people stood and sang to the top of their lungs asking God to um, bless America. Um, it, but he felt, as a Christian, um the seventh inning stretch kind of lost its appeal um, because I've, he said, I felt my favorite part of being a fan had the thunder stolen in the name of God. 
blessing our nation. Yeah, and that's really become a throwaway term, hasn't it? Yeah, God bless America. It's yeah. A, in every president's speech. Right. Most athletes, you know, will give some vague reference to God. But, yeah, it's just it's just a throwaway term nowadays. It really just doesn't mean anything uh, to a non-Christian. It's almost, I think it's almost like white noise. You expect it, you hear it, but you never think about it. You never think about what it means. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting and what he's pointing out here, and it, it being here in Kentucky, this may surprise most people, but you cross that river, and it really is a different religious landscape. Right. So we're not in the Bible Belt anymore. Right, very much so. Yeah, yeah. so he, he said, he this day in Ohio, I was reminded that cultural Christianity isn't just an epidemic of the American South. I just witnessed thousands of people worshiping enthusiastically in the church of civic religion. So what is civic religion? Well, the way he defines it, civic religion promotes a God without any definition and a generic faith that demands and asks nothing of its followers. Um, Participants stretch across the cultural spectrum in terms of geography and socioeconomic status, in some areas, civic religion is even proudly theistic and likes the idea of Jesus. Selective words spoken by Jesus in the New Testament will be used and cited when the political cause of the day needs a rally cry, whether it is uh, government-run health care, the death penalty, same-sex marriage, or immigration. Jesus' position as having an opinion that can suit one side, regardless of one's adherence to the authority of Scripture as a whole. Yeah, and I think you're you're already seeing that in this election cycle, where uh, they're invoking uh, Jesus to as support for whatever their particular policy is or whatever uh, acts they have to grind. So yeah, it's a uh, it's pretty pervasive throughout our our uh, culture. Yeah, there's another sentence he uses later in the book. <clears throat> he says they want Jesus to identify with them. Right, but they don't want to identify with, with him. him. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's basically civic religion, I think. Yeah, but then he goes on to talk about uh, uh, a term that may be familiar to some, others not so much, but moralistic therapeutic deism. And uh, he quotes our good friend uh, Al Mohler, which I'm still waiting for my invitation to be on a briefing, but it's, it hasn't come yet. Um, <laughs> But uh, Moeller identifies this, this moralistic therapeutic deism, as the new American religion. And he gives five uh, points, I guess, that describe this. Number one, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. So the question is, what's missing in all this? I mean, you give this a quick read over and, well, that sounds pretty good. But what's missing here? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is missing. Uh, you know, this is kind of like a God who just, it's, its you know, God made the world and walked away and he's there to help us uh, when we need him, but he's not actively involved. 
And, um, you know, hey, if we get into some kind of trouble, we can always uh, give him a holler and he'll uh, be there for us. And then, you know, you see this all the time. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. And so because of their view of God, their conduct here doesn't really matter. So it goes back to the fact that, you know, people don't believe that they're sinners. You know, yeah, maybe they're not perfect. Yeah, maybe they don't keep all the Ten Commandments. But, hey, God's a kindly old gentleman, and uh, he'll, he'll just uh, ignore my sin or wink at my sin or just forgive me for just because he's God. Well, we had an incident, not an incident, an example. I want to make it sound dramatic of um, someone had an opportunity to talk to someone here while we're at the lunch program, and they were just walking by, and the Ten Commandments were brought up, but the the default answer was, well, you know, everybody breaks one of them. Right. It's yeah. like, what's the, what's the big deal at the end of the day, right? Right, yeah. I'm good enough to go to heaven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, some people say, well, you know, uh, I, I keep eight out of 10, 80% is pretty good. That's pretty good batting average. Yeah. Hopefully God grace on a curve. Grace on a curve and it'll all be good. You know, he says uh, also that mainstream cultural Christians aren't wrapped up in promoting some kind of gospel message. They're simply trying to be nice to others, pursue their idea of personal happiness, pray when something bad happens and rest in the belief that they are going to heaven after they die. Um, that's the message that you hear in a lot of churches, isn't it? You know, be do nice. This. Yeah, do this. Be nice. Be that. Be nice. You know, be God. Good. God wants you to be happy. You know, when we have a tragedy like a mass shooting, or I guess there's a mass stabbing in California, we'll pray when something bad happens like that. And hey, doesn't matter because you're going to heaven when you die. Don't worry. Be happy. You're going to heaven. But what's the problem with that? How much time you got? <laughs> well, for one, it's that it. Any message that tells you you can go to heaven devoid of Christ always misses the mark. Jesus Himself said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No, no man, no one comes to the Father but, but by me." So it misses Jesus most importantly. But then, when when sin and God's holiness is not dealt with, we can never actually get to the gospel. So the, so the gospel is missing. If God just wants you to be nice, if God's just a grandfatherly guy up in heaven on his rocking chair, just, that's okay, be better next time, be nice. Um, we, we've, we miss the God of the Bible. As God has actually revealed himself. So there's, that's just a few of the issues. In, in there and he mentions in here I believe it's in this chapter the fact that part of the problem is they don't take the authority of scripture seriously so what happens when we don't take the authority of scripture seriously anything goes right and that's what we see today isn't it Well, there's no reverence for the author. So therefore, what authority can there be 
when the author, you do whatever you want to the author, like this, um, this notion that God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a, a God of love and grace in the New Testament. Well, then what, what people are teaching in that, whether they believe it or not, is that they think God is mutable. Right. He's changed. Yeah, exactly. He's changed. He's no longer immutable. So if God can change, and he he uh, quotes that um, guy in the Episcopalian church he said he interned at, or maybe an Anglican, Anglican church, where they were talking through some of these social issues of the day, and the guy said, well, God just needs to change with the times. Well, <laughs> you can think that because you don't have the authority of Scripture. And when you don't have the authority of Scripture, you ultimately lose God. Mm-hmm. Because it it carries his authority, but if you don't care about his authority as he's revealed it in his word, well. So how would you go about establishing God's authority in our day and age? How can we how can we as individuals, how can we as a church convey that God is the creator? that he made you and that you are accountable to him and what he says in his word, he means. I think we have to start with the definition of authority in general. I think most people today, when they hear the word authority, it's automatically authoritarianism instead of true authority. Um, So when they hear the authority of scripture, I think that's what most people are thinking. Um, so I th- this is not the starting point. I'm just throwing this out as a uh, something that I think will need to be done. But ultimately, I want to be careful here because I, I, I want us to be able to have many conversations with people. But at the end of the day, I just want to be like, just give them scripture. Yeah. And if they submit the Holy Spirit has done something. And, um, if not, you were faithful and it's, it is their nature to reject it. That doesn't mean you beat them upside the head with it or anything like that. You do it in grace and love. Um, but ultimately showing uh, that God's authority is always for our benefit. You see in the, even in the garden, when he gives the command, there's no, to Adam and Eve, there's no hint there that he's doing it because he hated them, right? Because that's what the serpent came to Adam and or came to Eve and said, "Yeah, did God really say? Does God really? Come on, you know, yeah, it won't hurt that bad." But I don't know. You have any further thoughts on that? Well, no, I think you hit the nail on the head. We have we as believers have to be confident and have the issue settled in our own hearts. That's Scripture is its own authority. The Word of God is quick, powerful. It cuts. It does its job. It does its work. And so that's the weapon that we have. That's the weapon that the Holy Spirit can use in order to open a person's eyes to the way that things really are, to the the authority of Scripture, to God's authority, to to whom God is. Um, Certainly we can use some apologetic arguments but the holy spirit hasn't promised to bless those he may choose to 
But when we use scripture, we can always do so with confidence, but because we know that the Holy Spirit has promised to bless that. Um, and again, it doesn't mean that they will be converted, but it does mean we have, we have been faithful in doing what God has asked us to do. And that's what God is going to hold us accountable for. So, you know, again, use scripture, no scripture. Don't be afraid to use scripture. You know, we think back of all the times in the Old Testament. How many times do you read um, the word of the Lord or God has said, or, you know, something along those lines? Um, God's not afraid to verify his own authority, is he? Mm-mm. No. So we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be either. So. That's a good point. I think we, we are under the false impression that we need some sort of apologetics training in order to do this. I think. I want to be careful here, but I, I think most of the time those are just distractions. You bringing up unnecessary arguments. Um, it's kind of like the one person brought up a very minor issue not too long ago, and someone else told him, "You don't need to worry about this issue until you're made right with God." Right. Your biggest yeah. issue right now is not who's leading the church, but rather it's you, right now. God is at enmity with you and you need to repent. Um, and then I think if we can get that mindset that the gospel is primary, all of these other arguments for the existence of God or the problem of evil are really secondary, sometimes not even secondary. Um, but we got to don't get distracted from what's primary, like beat that horse first and then or beat that drum and then go from there. Yeah. I heard John MacArthur say years ago, there's never enough proof for unbelief. So you can be the most skilled apologist for the, for God and the Bible and all those things that you want. But again, apart from the working of the Holy spirit, there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to convince them. You may, you may get them to begin to think differently and certainly there's some value in that, but nobody's ever been converted. Be careful here, I guess, but scripture is what converts people. The Holy Spirit is what converts people. It's not our rational arguments about things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, and that goes, he said towards the end of the chapter, knowledge alone does not equate to saving faith. Right. Yeah. So <clears throat> that's, so important to keep in mind. Our arguments aren't going to win people to the kingdom. It's ultimately scripture being declared as Paul talks about in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I wish, I wish more Christians believed that and would practice that. So he also talks about Jesus admiring versus Jesus following. Uh, and he says, self-proclaimed Christians who worship a God that requires no self-sacrifice no obedience, no submission, and no surrender are not worshiping the God of the Bible, no matter how much they claim to love Jesus. Um, and then he goes on to say, in his own words, Jesus tells us what it looks like to love him. And this is so simple, you wonder how so many people miss this. Jesus very clearly says, if you love me, you will keep my commands, John fourteen fifteen. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, John 14, 23. Then he says, many people want the good luck charm Jesus, not the sacrificial lamb of God whose death requires action. 
And this really would clear up a, a, a lot of confusion for a lot of people. Not, probably not for the unbeliever as much as it is for a lot of Christians because they go back and forth. Well, is this person a Christian or are they not a Christian? They, they, they kind of dance on this edge. Well, the reality is, do they obey Christ or do they not obey Christ? And if they're, they're not walking in obedience, not perfection, but if they're not walking in obedience, Jesus says, we're not saying it. Jesus says, hey, if you don't obey me, you don't love me. If you don't love me, you're not one of my own. So, fruit, fruit, exactly. Yeah, yeah. What, what's your what's your life producing? You know, you can say whatever you want to say. Again, he talks a lot in here about people. I think it was even in this chapter about people who go to church every Sunday. You know, and they think that that's somehow sufficient. That's that's all that they need to do. But uh, the reality is, if you're not obeying, well, well, let's give some practical examples of obedience. What would you What would you put on your list from Scripture? By the way, thanks for clarifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I've been in Galatians five some this week, just thinking and meditating and. Um, Obedience would be walking by the Spirit, Mm -hmm. which means our lives should be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, Mm -hmm. which is uh, love. So we should be uh, loving to our our wives, our our children, our church members, our church family, um, our neighbors. Uh, Joy. We shouldn't be a a Donnie Downer. (laughs) I know that's not the word, but that's all that's coming to mind right now. Love, joy, peace. There's a certain anxiety that should not be evident in our lives um, because God is sovereign and the the indwelling Holy Spirit has given us peace, Um, self-control. We shouldn't be given to fits of rage and anger. Um, But that's how we be obedient. I mean, you know, spending time in the Word meditating that's an act of obedience praying is an act of obedience um being sacrificial in your giving whether that's in uh tithe to the church or in other areas that's that is obedience uh, it's in the most of it's in just in the mundane of life it's not big exactly right it's not these big endeavors that god's going to ask us to do i don't think most of us are going to god may call some of us to go to africa but I think the likelihood is he's got us right here because he wants us right here at the moment. So, um, so it's a, it's obeying in those small things on a day in day out basis. Yeah. Yeah. I think you hit a pretty good list there. You know, it's just doing what the Bible instructs us to do, what God has instructed us to do through his word. All those things that you talked about, you know, Paul said, this is the will of God, even what your sanctification, mm-hmm. yep. you know, That'd be a good study for someone to go look up. What what does the Bible say? This is the will of God. Well, you'll find several instances in the New Testament that uses that phrase specifically, such as this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you re- remain sexually pure. You know, mm-hmm. um, so it's it's really not as hard to figure out. I don't think as a lot of people want to make it, and a lot of my guests are just ignorant or lazy 
or think that it doesn't really matter. Take your pick. So, and then he goes on and says, Scripture tells us that an intellectual grasp of the gospel story, even the whole gospel story, is not enough to save. And this, again, we hearken back to R.C. Sproul's lesson, been a week ago now, that um, there's three elements that have to, um, that are a part of saving faith. Can you give the Latin terms? No. <laughs> <laughs> He'd want us to, but I, you know, the first one's basically knowledge. You assent uh, to the knowledge you believe. Um, so you're, you're not only looking at it and saying this makes sense, but you believe that it's true and then it's trust. I'm going to put, um, I'm going to put everything on this. I know it's probably an overused example, but you use the example of a chair. Right. We all know we have the knowledge of what a chair is for. We believe that the chair is going to hold us up, but faith isn't evident until we actually sit down in the chair and trust it, uh, trust what we know to be true, what we believe to be true, then we trust it and we sit down and, um, Lord willing, the chair holds us. So, right. yeah. Yeah. Okay. So again, I think that just to pause, I think that's important to remember in reform circles because we are so, um, brain, brain heavy, brain heavy in a, in a healthy way in most cases, mm-hmm. but in some cases it is just an intellectual faith. It's not a faith that is actually trusted in Christ. They could probably explain penal substitutionary atonement to you. Um, but their lives, many people's lives evidence that they're not trusting in what they can explain. And I think that's important for us to remember because we can hear, well, I met so-and-so and they read MacArthur and they read Piper and it's like we get our, it turns our crank because nobody else reads these guys. And it, you know, hopefully I'm wrong in most cases, but some cases it's, their life stinks. Yeah. It's the only fruit that's there is rotten. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, we could both name some people that immediately come to mind that, you know, from their outward appearance, from what they say, you know, like who they read, well, you would be tempted to think that they are Christian, but then when you get below the surface, you see that that's uh, probably not the case. So, so again, he reiterates this fact that knowledge alone does not equate to saving faith. And so he kind of wraps up this chapter by going back to the Reds game in Cincinnati and uh, wondering, you know, what God were they singing to? What were the characteristics of the God that they were singing to? Um, so, you know, I think even as, even as professing believers, we need to examine ourselves and see, well, who is the God that we're praising? Yeah, you know, I can think of. Uh, I can think of. I can. I have one family in particular, who visited the church and talked a good game, but you can't get them to be faithful to church. So, what are we to think about that? You know, is that an indication that they're immature, or that they're not a believer? I don't know. So. And then he says something I thought was pretty bold where he said, uh, and I'm going to have to read a lengthy portion here, but bear with me. He says, looking back at the Reds game in Cincinnati, I'm tempted to ask whether or not the God we sang to was the same God the politicians asked to bless America at the closing of a speech 
And the same God, the winning quarterback, thanks during post-game interview. I'm curious about the answer, but recognize this is not the most important question. The issue of importance is whether this God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is this God Yahweh, the God of Israel, who in these last days has spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1-2? It's hard to know the answer, but it matters for the church on mission. Because a faith clothed in Christian language that doesn't find its definition in the person and work of Jesus Christ is not a Christian faith. And then he says this, Jesus dismisses it altogether. And he references Matthew 7, 21 through 23 again. And then he says, and I, I, I highlighted this and I underlined this, I wonder why we don't often do the same. Now he does answer the question, but... How would you answer the quote? Why don't we do the same? Fear. Fear, exactly. We, exactly. Fear, we fear man more yeah. than we fear God. So and um, we live in such a culture where judge me not. Yep. You know, everyone's exactly. yep. favorite verse, judge not, lest you be judged first. Or, um, right? Lest you be judged. <laughs> I'm thinking of a story from Joey. He'll remember this when he listens to the podcast, um, which I think... Never mind, it doesn't matter. But um, you can't tell me I'm wrong, and I can't. Yeah, who are you to yeah, tell me I'm yeah. wrong? Um, and you hear that enough, and you buy it. It's easy to buy into. Cause it's, I mean, I, I, there's, there's days I don't even like telling my kids they're wrong. Mainly because I'm tired of telling them. <laughs> um, but you know, um, I want my kids to think well of me. Right. You know, yep. Um, but it's more important because eternity's on the line to say, "Hey, you're right now in this moment. You are sinning not just against mommy and daddy, but God." Mm. Um, and I, that's hard to tell someone, but it's the faithful thing to tell someone, and it's actually the most loving thing, right? Uh, we can tell someone, um. I think that's the big issue. I think from a church perspective and a church leader perspective, numbers probably play in this more than people would ever want to admit. If I start preaching this, I'll lose my crowd, you know, um, and num- number numbers pay the bills, numbers do whatever. So, um, I understand why someone would think that way, but that's not the, it's not the faithful biblical way to think about it. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think you're spot on. It's the fear of man. You don't want to be labeled a bigot. You don't want to be on the other end of the accusation where who are you to judge me? But, you know, if we look at the life of Jesus, he didn't have a problem judging people, did he? <laughs> no. No. I mean, he... Jesus had hard words, very hard words. Yeah, yeah. And that's why it makes you wonder sometimes have these people who... Uh, try and get Jesus on their side for whatever their political view or program or whatever it is. <laughs> they say, have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever read the New Testament? Have mm-hmm. you ever really read <laughs> what Jesus has said? Because I don't, I don't think you'd be so quick to draw him into your argument if you, if you had. So, so what's the takeaway from this chapter? Culture of Christianity is probably more pervasive than we ever think it is. Uh, I think being in the Bible Belt, it's so easy to think, and we've thought this way before, and this book has probably opened our eyes more than any other book. Um, this is just a Bible Belt issue, right? Right. 
Um, only Bible Belt churches have the patriotic services where we sing God bless America and my country tis of thee. But um, in some ways all over the country every Sunday from April to October, you've got people who invoke God's name to bless America when um, they could probably care less about blessing God. So it's... It's a, it's a selfish statement, isn't it? Mm, God yeah. bless America. Yeah. Yeah. To hell with the rest of the world, but God bless America. Yeah, please. <laughs> um, I think that's the biggest takeaway. It's just very, very pervasive, and we've got our head in the sand if we think otherwise. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think also we need to be more bold as Christians, right? We, we should, in love, be willing to confront those who make a claim to be a Christian, but whose lives show no evidence of that. Now, you know, there used to be a car drove around town. I haven't seen it in a while, but was it called demon busters or <laughs> yeah. demon hunters or something yeah. like that? <laughs> we, we don't want to get that reputation, but you know, yeah, you don't need a Turner burn magnet on your car. Yeah. Yeah. But there, <laughs> there, there, there needs to be times when we are willing to, confront those in love and say, and you know, you don't have to, you, I think one of the ways you can do this is just say, let's take a look at what the Bible says about who's a Christian rather than us pointing the finger in their chest, take them back to scripture and let the Holy spirit use the scriptures to do the work. So that means we need to know the scriptures. Yeah. And keep in mind that boldness looks different for each person. Right. I'm not, you know, John MacArthur always comes to mind when I think of boldness or even R.C. Sproul. But I'm not going to be bold in the way that, that they are. Right. It's going to look different for me, um, and it looks different for you. But the, the key is the Holy Spirit will give us what we need to be bold in that moment when we're bringing Scripture to bear. And that boldness can be done in gentleness. The boldness is getting the truth out there. Yep, I agree. Any last word? No. That's it. That's my last word. Other than there has been a wasp over here the whole time. And uh, just hoping I don't get stung. Wow. Yeah. Let's get out of here. Yeah. (laughs) See y'all. Thank you for listening. Bye.